I've been in this weird kind of place the last like week and I've been dealing with some back issues. So I've been kind of laid up and whatever and to try and keep my son like happy, connected to me, thinking mm-hmm. I'm cool when I can't physically do anything with him. I bought him Minecraft right. on the Xbox mm-hmm. and we've been playing Minecraft together mm-hmm. and we've been building, you know, stuff. Like just whatever, castles, whatever came to mind. Something, I saw something, I don't know what it was, but I realized you can build like recreations of things Mm -hmm. that you've seen, Mm -hmm. that you like, that you enjoy, or even characters. Mm -hmm. So as I've mentioned to you before, I am kind of strangely obsessed with Adventure Time. Right. So I found out that you could do a BMO who's a character on Adventure Time, mm-hmm. a giant BMO. Mm-hmm. And Indy and I worked on it and we made this <laughs> giant BMO. But I don't have a good imagination right. for Minecraft. Like the stuff that I try and create on my own, it's just It's terrible. crap, yeah. It's crap. That's how those games always go. It's, it's terrible. You get like, there's like 1% of the population that can like really do awesome things with it. And then everyone else is just like, just like banging stuff together exactly and then giving up and looking at what everyone else is doing. And uh, so I did this BMO off of a video from this man who sounds older than me mm-hmm. and he was really great mm-hmm. telling you exactly where to put your pieces, whatever right. Indy and I could follow along. It was great. Mm-hmm. So um, wait, wait a minute. It was a beam. It was a Minecraft BMO like video tutorial. Yes. On YouTube. Okay. Mm-hmm. You can find it if you just search, BMO oh, Minecraft yeah. tutorial. I believe it. <laughs> we'll put it in our in our show yeah, notes. Sure. Right, Justin? Yeah, I'll, I'll throw it in there. <laughs> so I did that. And then for whatever reason, I got in my head. I'm like, I'm going to do the whole Adventure Time treehouse. Uh-huh. Finn and Jake, two other characters on the show, live in a treehouse. Right. And I found a tutorial for that. <laughs> that tutorial comes in like 10 videos. Uh-huh. So every night when I come home from work and Indy's like, let's play video games. I'm like, okay, Minecraft. And then I start tutorial. I do one section of the mm-hmm. tutorial. Mm-hmm. The problem with this one is it's this kid who like is always referencing his parkour videos too uh-huh. that he does like in his neighborhood uh-huh. and who just uses, you know, when something doesn't go right, he'll be like, oh, that looks retarded. Or, you uh, know? And I'm like, yeah. oh, gosh. Like, yeah. And then he can't count, and he messes up a lot. Like, there's one section. I was like, 20 minutes. I was like, this is long, right? Yeah. But I'm like, I'm going to do it. I've started this project. Indy and I are working on it. And, um, you know, eight minutes of a 20-minute video is him building, doing a whole wall and being like, that doesn't look right. And then <laughs> destroying the entire wall, right. moving it one closer, then constructing the wall and being like, oh, there it is. That's yeah. better. And it has me, not only do I feel bad that I'm putting so much time into Minecraft, although I justify it by my son's involvement. Right. If it was just me, maybe it'd be a, a little more awkward. But also I'm taking instructions from this mm, 14, <laughs> 15-year-old parkour. Right kid who still uses phrases like peace out that i didn't uh, know people still use nowadays uh, maybe he's using it ironically 
Um, but as a parkour enthusiast, I don't imagine he does anything ironically. I imagine he does everything <laughs> like right. at 11. Full hearted, yeah. Full heartedly. Uh, and anyway, I am two videos from being done and I I don't know if I can do it. Uh-huh. These are the last two big ones. They're over 20 minutes. Boy. Yeah. And I just... Uh, there's no other video. There's I've no looked, other. <laughs> I've looked. The only other video is somebody who builds an entire treehouse, mm-hmm. but then speeds it up to like ten times the speed mm-hmm. and right. doesn't stop to like explain anything. I'm like, yeah. okay, I don't know what you. And want there's me to do no with like. That. Can't you like download people's levels or something? Or I, you can go into their worlds, right? Yeah, I think they have to post mm-hmm. a long script mm-hmm. for it for you to find them or whatever and that kind of defeats the whole purpose anyways right and indy and i are kind of building it but i know if i go off book from this kid i'm gonna mess it up it's gonna it's starting to come together yeah it's starting to look like the treehouse if i give up now <laughs> i don't have the skill to pull off the final whatever i have to i don't even know uh-huh. what i have to do left you know uh-huh. and i just and i don't know how bad i should feel about what i'm doing well you and how does indy feel about it he's just like all for it, right? He loves like, it. He doesn't know that it's potentially a, a disaster, right? It's not like he and doesn't, he doesn't know, know, it's know like that a daddy disaster. Here's the other thing: he doesn't know that daddy's taking you know orders from a 14 year old <laughs> right. parkour enthusiast. Uh, uh, he thinks that I'm kind, and I'm not saying I'm doing. It. I'm like, oh, I'm watching a video, but he still thinks that I'm amazing. Right? He thinks I'm a great builder. Yeah. You know, and so what if I mess up this last half and he realizes how terrible I actually am at right. it? This could also you. I think you might have to be care- be careful because this could also turn into, you know, whenever he starts going to school or you know, you know, ten, fifteen years I down know the exactly line. Exactly you're, where you're going like, with this. Yeah, like my dad would like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I, my dad was like the guy that like watched Minecraft videos on YouTube and made the levels. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the Lego Movie, but the the whole thing is you know present business is kind of this adult who's trying to dominate the lego right. experience for his child is kind of the spoiler alert yeah and i do struggle with that am i present business a little bit mm-hmm. and also am i creating a pattern of behavior now that yeah when indy leaves am i going to be turning on my xbox 360 <laughs> and like cranking up minecraft and just like uh-huh. am i going to have this huge expansive universe over decades yeah is this my new hobby? I'm not, I'm going to give up. I mean, it's hard to write, you know, it's yeah. really easy to follow videos on YouTube. <laughs> I may just yeah. do that. That may just, I'm scared, Justin. That's what, yeah. I, that's what this is about. It's a cry for help, an early uh, cry for help. <laughs> well, at least we have it on tape or on record. Uh, Keith, if you're listening to this uh, <laughs> two decades and you're still playing Minecraft, read a book, put it down. Let it go. Yeah. It's okay. All right. Well, uh, this is Everything is Interesting. Um, the guy uh, living in Minecraft is Keith Krepko. <laughs> My name is Begrudgingly living right now. <laughs> um, today we are talking about Snowpiercer, uh, the, directed by um, Bong, Joon-ho. Bong Joon-ho, right? Uh, so we'll talk about Snowpiercer. Um, we didn't we didn't discuss what we'll be talking about after that, but we'll be talking about something else. Yep. Maybe we'll talk about um, what was that the thing called the f- 
the firm is it fermi oh the fermi paradox yeah the fermi paradox maybe You're ready i'm ready to talk about i've i've been thinking about nothing since i've read that article <laughs> yeah. so yeah maybe we'll talk about that and then um we'll finish with a discussion of uh our recommendations from last show and i've got a, a recommendation for keith we'll take a quick break and, and we'll come back with snowpiercer Snowpiercer is uh, Bong Joon-ho's, ama- I guess it. I was reading something and it, he didn't intentionally set out to make a, an English, an English language. language film or an American movie. It just turned out that way because the cast, he wanted the cast to be international. Right. But it is more or less his American movie debut. Right. The uh, basic premise is in order to combat global warming, the world has re- released a chemical CW7 right CW7 to negate the effects of global warming and it had such a s- extreme reaction that it sent the world into a uh, ice age ice age so everyone is dead except for the people who made it onto this train called the ark right mm-hmm. so uh, uh the creator of the ark more or less foresaw what was going to happen with Wilfred. the chemicals. Wilford, Wilford, Wilfred. Wilford, yeah. I think it's Wilford. Yeah. Wilford. Um, he created this uh, train, the Ark. Uh, it's like a thousand cars long. Um, and he, he, he connected all of the world's train tracks to form <laughs> one continuous train track that circles the earth once a year, right? Yes. And that's more or less the the premise, uh, you know. And then, well, and then there's the the class warfare aspect of it, which all of the rich people live up in the front by the engine, mm-hmm. and then the tail of the train is reserved for the poor right. people who are, you know, more or less oppressed. And the engine itself is seen as sacred, which right. I think is also interesting that their whole society literally goes from the far back in your scum all the way to the heavenly to the to the sacred all in one continuous line yeah like i thought that was interesting that they did transgress the the spiritual in the engine car Mm -hmm. that wasn't just you know wilford is um the president but he is deity yeah he is treated and and he is looked at as a, a a religious figure or maybe even like a cult figure i would say right so yeah so so the movie opens with everyone in the uh, so the structure of the movie is basically you start at the rear of the train with the tailies more or less and you're you're following their revolt so one thing that caught me was um bong joon ho's sort of style of directing and making movies they're all they're all very uh, well, I guess it it varies on your like of the films, but he at least attempts to mix humor 
action, drama, and all of them. Puts it all in there. And yeah. and you know, and the and the humor is like it's like it's almost like slapstickish humor, right? Yeah. And it and for me it works really well in like memories of murder. Um when they're fighting and then kick dropping each right. other. Uh but that's also in this movie. And mm-hmm. I was I was wondering what you thought of that. Like mm-hmm. did it work for you? Is it just like par for the course? Like you know what I mean? Yeah, there, there's Did it feel a scene, any different. Yeah, there's one scene that I don't know if you're explicitly referencing where Chris Evans, the kind of leader of this revolt, slips on a fish. Yeah, and you know that to me wasn't as much of like a Charlie Chaplin, like mm-hmm. whoop. You know, it was more of a gag in the middle of this, but it could have happened. It didn't strike yeah. me as being. It wasn't like a banana peel that was just like placed. He's like, whoops. I mean, they're in a cart that involves fish and he slips on one. Well, the scene opens. Well, yeah. And I guess it's there. The um, there's this big fight scene about half a, l- a little bit earlier than halfway through the movie. There's this big fight scene in one of the train cars and it opens up with um, the this gang of people. They're getting ready to fight by them cutting open a fish and then like dipping their axes in the blood in the blood mm-hmm. to get fish blood on their axes, which I wasn't sure of the significance of if there is any. Right. Um, but then I guess the fish just, dis- it's not something you would ever think about. Right. And right. Then halfway through the action scene, Chris Evans just slips, slips on it. On it yeah. But then it's also, it's not like, it's like you said, it's not like a Pratt fall. You know right. what I mean? It's kind of like halfway in between a, a Pratt fall and like, like a, a like a serious fall, you right? Know what I mean, he almost dies because of it, right? Um, so it felt kind of weird to me, and I think that it's interesting you bring that up specifically because I think that is probably the most noticeable evidence of the humor in the film. But it also kind of like represents how a lot of it. It's not that it didn't work; it just felt kind of like it didn't feel. I don't. I don't know if the. I don't know if it's the if it's because I'm no longer having to like interpret other things like the language, like because it's a, right. an, an American you just focus movie on the that it feels a little strange to me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Whereas the, the humor stuff in memories of murder is really great. And I thought it worked really well, but in this movie for some reason, it was just kind of like all of it seemed a little like tepid for some reason. Be- besides the, the fish, some of the other jokes, I think, are when they get to the school car, the education yeah. car. And to me, what I liked, and by the time you get to the end and you have kind of Williford, is that his? Wilf- Wilford. Wilford. Mm-hmm. And you have Wilford kind of detailing some of the specifics of the car. I think you realize that all these people in this society are crazy in some yeah. Some respect, they've been altered by living on a train, by their surroundings, their extreme wealth or whatever, and it's caused them to act kind of irrationally. And I liked it. I I liked that kind of mixture of tones mm-hmm. in the middle of everything and to me it fit this weird strange world. Um, so, and, and it does fit with the, with Bong Joon 
Jun Ho, you know? Right. Um, I think of the host too. Like one of the big complaints people have is when the family, they follow the host, go to the kind of the mm-hmm. remembrance sites. And they lose it. They yeah. lose it. And they are screaming mm-hmm. and they're falling on the ground and they're grabbing each other and they're rolling, physically rolling on the floor. Mm-hmm. And it's just so odd and bizarre. Yeah. And I think some of it is, you know, he's like, I think this is funny, so screw it. And I think some of it, though, too, lends to the atmosphere of where you're at, where this story is taking place. Yeah. It's heightened. It's all heightened. You know, if you think too hard about this plot, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So why not? Why not have fun with it? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. It just didn't. It didn't. For some reason, it did, just didn't work for me. Like, and I think that I think the. The. I think one of the biggest problems I have with it is Chris Evans himself because Chris Evans really? is you didn't like him. No, he's oh. he's like in like like that's the thing. Like everyone else is acting like they're in a Bong Joon-ho movie mm-hmm. and Chris Evans is like still basically in Captain America. You know what I mean? Like and so that contrast was like it was just like I don't know if that's supposed to be representative of like you as the viewer, like Chris, you know what I mean? You're supposed to be seeing it as you're, you're supposed to be relating to Chris Evans. So he's more or less as stoic as possible Hmm. um, outside of, you know, his confessional scene. Um, But everyone else like, and, and everyone in the front of the, of the train is acting crazy, but like you also have like, like the, like the guy in, uh, in the tail end of the train who gets his arm frozen off, mm-hmm. right. Who kind of looks like sideshow Bob. Mm-hmm. And, but he's also like super animated, like, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll say like it, it works. Like it's, it's more or less what you expect from a Bong Joon Ho movie. Right. Um, but then I don't know. It just it felt so uneven because you keep going back to this Chris Evans character who's more or less playing the typical like American brooding hero. Yeah, I'll just say I guess I think you bring up an inter- interesting point when you say that this perhaps the fact that it's mainly in English, so it does right. prey upon your expectations. Hearing English spoken, this is going to be a american maybe or just english film and nobody's really doing tonal things like bong joon ho is right from and maybe it's cultural maybe in in his culture that stuff definitely plays as as an expectation more than than a surprise i think that he does like playing with tone and so chris evans i thought did a great job in grounding the action part of it that he was playing the all-american hero the Mm. leader and I was connected to him, and then all the insanity surrounding him, I, I was excited by as Bong Joon-ho touches. And like mm-hmm. you say, the man who gets his arm frozen off in the beginning, like his face is when his hand go, his arm goes out, and then when you can tell it's kind of numb mm-hmm. to the point when his arm gets broken off. It's like if you just put it on mute, he's like a great mm-hmm. silent. It's, it's hilarious. Yeah. You know, um, and I don't know, to, to me, as somebody, maybe it's just my love of his other films bleeding over into that. I could absolutely see somebody coming to this film being like, oh, Chris Evans, you know, oh, they're speaking English. Great. And being like, as soon as he slips on a fish mm-hmm. or that, yeah, that guy, his arm being frozen off being like, what am I, what did I get myself into? This is mm-hmm. terrible. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. For me, it worked. I'm sorry to hear it didn't work as well for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, let's let's talk. Let's also let's let's talk about that train the the train scene in the middle of the movie because it's kind of um, it's kind of like I think it's at least supposed to be the centerpiece. I mean, it is the centerpiece kind of literally because it's in the middle of the movie. But it's also, um, you know, they're they're working their way through the train, and um, they get to this door. So they're working their way through the train. They pick up, I don't know the act, the Korean actor's name, mm-hmm. but he, um, they they pick up a security expert who's who who installed all the doors. Right, he's in almost right. all of Bong Joon-ho's right. films. He's and, amazing. And um and. Uh, he demands that they. I heard someone refer to her as his daughter. Yeah, he does. He he refers oh, okay. to her as his daughter. Okay. Um. So he he also brings along his daughter. They're in um a prison, and the prison is more or less like like cold storage at a morgue, right? Yeah. And did you listen to the slate? Yeah. Spoiler. And they didn't know where he came from. And I yeah. thought it was pretty explicit that he was in prison for yeah his uh abuse of the, of the drug right and and i listened to that before i watched the movie again or at least some of the movie again and yeah when i, I watched a second time they very explicitly say like this is the prison car, <laughs> car. <laughs> yeah, yeah so he's in prison for using uh drugs his daughter is also there for abusing the drugs um it turns out that his daughter is clairvoyant um so they get to this uh part in the in the train and um they're trying to get the door open and the daughter's like don't open don't it. open that door right and of course that's right when the door opens and it reveals hundreds of masked guys with axes and that's when they you know start dipping their axe in the fish but that's kind of like the big action scene right mm-hmm. and it just kind of i don't know like the first thing i thought of when it started happening was old boy probably because of the producer the credit hall- yeah and that hallway scene but then yeah but then it, it does a sort of a profile shot of the hallway where he's chris evans is working his way from one end to the other but it was just like so under it kind of spoke to everything else i feel with the film it just was so underwhelming and it didn't like it was just like like it made me think of that scene in old in old but the hammer scene in old boy which is awesome mm-hmm. and it also made me think of the that fight scene in skyfall when they're in the building that's under the construction, right? Yes. And it just becomes silhouettes against right. like neon lights. And it, cause you kind of have that feel, right? Where it's like, you've got this bright light from the outside coming in and it's more or less turning everything else into silhouettes. But for some reason it just felt like it just like wasn't choreographed. Well, it was just really like disappointing. The, the, I, I guess I can agree with you that there was no central kind of through line on that action sequence now i just want to distinguish really quickly because maybe it's getting jumbled in my mind there's the first action sequence that ends with that huge guard swinging a huge like ton Mm -hmm. of weight and that guy runs and jumps Mm -hmm. around him and kind of Mm -hmm. kills him you're talking about the one after that right right? yeah okay um because that that action scene i thought if you think about the through line or at least the capper on it you would say that does have it. You introduce a new character, yeah. right? Who has an awesome new skill, who can take down this big guy. That's the point of that action scene. With this action scene, I agree that it lacks a a through line to connect you 
you know, you're not introducing a new character through it. You're not showing a new skill of somebody. Mm-hmm. People do die in it, though. Mm-hmm. Some main characters do die, which which I really do like. And I like how Bong Joon-ho deals with the death of his characters, which is just, yep, she's dead, you know? Yeah. Let's, uh, let, let's keep moving forward. Um, and so I guess I can agree with that. I, I, you know, it didn't, that scene, I guess, didn't strike me. Although at one point, the lights go off. Right. Yeah. I thought that was a cool visual. Yeah, and, that, and that's what I was gonna say. I, and this speaks to my feelings of the movie as a whole. I like all of the ideas in the movie. Mm-hmm. I liked the the, in theory, I like the setup of the of that action scene. I just don't like the like delivery. Execution. Of it. The execution of it is is not. It's just as like underwhelming for me. Like, like you're saying in that action scene, right? You 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 run into all of these guys, and there and when the door opens, it is this moment of like, oh man, oh, what's no. going to happen, right? Right. And then you also do have these um, great ideas of like slipping on a fish, right? The slipping on the fish, which I think could work. Um, and if anybody's you know could do that, it's Bong Joon Ho. But uh, and, and then you also have the idea of like, well, then they go through a tunnel. And it blacks out the entire car because they're in a train and all of the bad guys have night vision, right? So that's a great idea. And then the good guys counteract it by bringing in torches, right? And that's yeah. a great idea. Yeah. But then, and and like you said, the way that he handles um, killing off, you know, main characters or important characters is another is another great way, like... It says a lot about Chris Evans as a as a lead, and it says a lot about his character. Um, and it's also, you know, pretty unexpected. But for some reason, just the execution of it was just like it was really underwhelming. Yeah, I, you know, I guess I also watch The Raid Two yeah. in theaters, and that has stuck with me. That's like really high up on my year end list or so far not year end but my Mm. my running year list of of films and with that you can see what the purpose of each you know action scene is Mm -hmm. one thing that i commented um to my wife who, who watched the film too is i love how you could see in a moment what the strategy is between two people one guy has something in his hand that can hurt you. Mm-hmm. So the other guy tries to continually hold his hand through mm-hmm. the fight scene so he can control it. Mm-hmm. Like that's smart. You know, you can tell that the choreographers have thought through, you know, the actors have thought through and then the director films it amazingly with this film. I did get the sense that it was like big action scene. Let's go into it. And they didn't have that, carefully kind of choreographed idea you know where old boy it's like he has hammers you know Mm -hmm. let's Mm -hmm. watch him use those hammers raid 2 there's like 15 specific ideas through all the action sequences but with um this one i don't know if they just wanted to make it more about the characters Mm -hmm. and they're like we're not gonna we don't have the time or maybe the money to spend shooting four days to give chris evans like a hatchet and like let's mm. watch him go through it with the hatchet let's just you know let's just turn the lights out give him torches let's just have people die yeah and to me in the scope of it i i was okay with it it i did feel like it could have been executed better but i feel like maybe he would have needed 
at least a million more dollars, mm-hmm. you know, and like with the CGI in this, mm-hmm. you can tell this film was done on a budget. Yeah. And I'm fine with it. Yeah. Because I'd rather have him make this film than have him be like, uh, I can't make the outside look amazing. I'm not doing it. Yeah. So I agree, but then I also excuse it, I guess, in my mind. Yeah. So the, the trains, the train sequence ends with uh, Chris Evans capturing Tilda Swinton, who is great. Like Tilda Swinton's awesome Love, in this movie. She's really good. I, I read a review that did not like her, and I wanted to be like, I don't know what you wanted. Yeah. She's great in this universe. Yeah, and she she plays more or less kind of like a. Like maybe like the top henchman, maybe like yeah. she's obviously not like a, a physical threat, but yeah, she's like the face of the comp- the evil company, right? right? They start mer- moving further through the train. They they enter the um. That was the other. That was another thing that's kind of that was kind of disappointing to me. Y- you have this opportunity to like do things with a train car that people have you know never seen before, and outside of like the aquarium car which Mm -hmm. is awesome Mm -hmm. there's not really that much like you get like an aquarium car which is great but then you get like a a class an elementary classroom car which is just like looks like a classroom i guess (laughs) which is kind of neat if you think about it's on a train car yeah but then you've got like a fancy restaurant car which is they breeze through you have like a club rave car, right. which is just like every club or rave yeah, you've and seen. and so I was a little I was a little disappointed in the in in that it's just kind of like I expected a lot sort of more you know I expected I guess you know as unique as some of the characters are like Tilda Swinton um, I was expecting that to be represented yeah. in the in like the, the train sensory car deprivation car yeah. yes. <laughs> All black. Yeah. Well, that's more or less where they were living in the beginning. Right. But anyways, you mentioned John Hurt. He's in the movie. He plays a guy named Gilliam, who's more or less the leader of the Tailies, right? Which, which, and I heard somebody say this too. It's a wink to Terry Gilliam, right? Do yeah. you get that too? That- well, I heard that. Yeah, I heard that. I, heard that I think that was also in the, the, the Slate spoiler mm-hmm. um, podcast. Um, and... It could very well be. I mean, I don't think there's anything in the movie to support it necessarily, but even the visuals. Pot- I mean, potentially, but I would. I guess I, I I would still just. I don't think the visuals are that far out of Bong Joon Ho's wheelhouse that you could. See. You know, what I mean, I I'm yeah. sure they're inspired by. I right. mean, you know, I I wouldn't doubt that, but I don't think it's a very like obvious. Right, you're you're not taking that correlation beyond that character. Yeah, it's not like a, an immediate reference point. Uh, yeah. So Chris Evans gets the end of the train. He meets Ed Harris, who is Wilford, and um, Ed Harris wants him to uh take his place, right? Which, first of all, I thought like. Ed Harris is not that old, right? It's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, really? more or this less. A- but he's like, you know, I'm getting old and I need somebody to take my take my place. But it's like, Ed Harris, like, he doesn't look that old. Part, part of me, though, feels like there's something he knows that if Chris Evans agrees, I don't know. I, I felt like either, number one, that wasn't the full scope of his plan. Yeah. Or if it was, 
a lot would have to change. Like he's eventually going to have to be like Chris Evans. This train runs on small children labor. (laughs) Like Chris Evans, you need to now like subjugate the back end of this train. Uh, And to me, that's like, that's indoctrination. That's, you know, a lot needs to happen. It's not like, I don't think Ed Harris is like, I'm going to keel over tomorrow and you need to take my space. I think it's like, we're going to either, he's just trying to bide bide time. Or he's like, yeah, you're going to live with me for 20 years and you're going to be as crazy as I am at the end of it. You yeah. know, and then and then you'll be ready to take over. That's true. Yeah, and and we should say right before that scene, Chris Evans gives a confession. Yeah, that I think is great. Yeah, it's it's you know it's it's one of those like crazy sort of you know Korean film twists. Yeah, right. Um, but it's also like totally like appropriate. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yep, um, and it's not done in you know old boy. I think takes pleasure. I think in showing you some of its twists too, mm-hmm. like I'm remembering the big confession at the end mm-hmm. and Park Chan-wook like does flashbacks to be like, yep, here's two people doing this thing. Here's yeah. what happened. I like that. This is just all verbal. Yeah. It's you know, kept on Chris Evans the entire time. Yeah. It's kept on Chris, Evans, which is another reason why I think he did a great job because he yeah. sold it. Yeah. Um, so anyways, he's Ed Harris is asking him to take over and it did seem like to me that like um, he was considering it, right? Like, yeah. did you get that feeling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, I think he did a great job because for a second there, I was like, oh no, like the big twist is like Chris Evans is going to be like, okay, I'm done fighting. I'm yeah, done and running at, from at it. one point in the movie, Gilliam is, uh, John Hurt, who's playing Gilliam, is telling Chris Evans, like, if you get to meet uh, Wilford, Face to face, the first thing you need to do is cut his tongue out. Don't let him start talking to you. Right. right? So you get this sense that he's this, you know, great manipulator. Right. And and as soon as he gets in there, Wilford starts talking, and it's like, like I said, you really you, good. Yeah, you get the sense that like Chris Evans is considering it, um, but then it's interrupted by the clairvoyant daughter shows up, and she starts like scratching at the floor of the engine room. Mm-hmm. And when they lift up the, the floorboards, they see that the engine is actually being powered by, um, children and maintained and, and maintained by children because they're the only mm-hmm. people small enough to fit into the engines compartment to service it. And to, and they, they more or less become a cog in the engine where they're just doing very rote actions. They're just doing the same thing over and over mm-hmm. again. And specifically children under five. And Chris Evans uses that moment to redeem himself from his confession that he talked about earlier. But it it the the thing that everyone is talking about with the movie or the comparisons that everyone has made is is to the is to the Occupy movement. Or that's what I've heard the most. Is that the the um the people in the front of the train represent the one percent, right? And, and the, the global one percent, not global just 1%, the American. Right. Um, and the people in the in the rear represent the ninety nine percent, or represent us. And I was wondering if you if you got that feel, like like what are your feelings on the message of the film? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the you know the class warfare stuff is just one aspect of it, right? Uh, what what is what sense did you get about that from the movie, like? 
did you think it did well with it? Do you think it even really addressed it at all? Or Honestly, the, the one thing that I wish they would have addressed in this, because it is a pretty binary, you know, kind of metaphor. The whole flow of the train, the 99%, the 1% is totally there. The one thing that I don't, that I didn't think was addressed that I was interested in is what is the relationship between the 99% and the sadism that they, you know, kind of uh, project or put on the 99%, you know, Mm -hmm. from the very beginning, you know, a man, his arm is frozen off Mm -hmm. until the Swinton gives them this whole speech about know your place, right? That they are shoes, Mm -hmm. that she's a hat. Mm -hmm. They need to be shoes and shoes don't go on heads, you know, all that thing. Right. But there's a real pleasure that she takes in watching that man's arm get frozen and broken off. There's a great pleasure that the 1% takes in taking from the 99% in taking their children and killing them. And Ed Harris kind of reveals at the end that it's kind of sport. They, well, he justifies it by saying it's population control. Well, yeah, he says it's population control, but he's like, also, it's exciting. You know, mm-hmm. he's like, you guys put up a you know hell of a fight. And that's true. That's right. He he kind of like recaps their yes. revolution, like it's a like it's a sport. sport yeah. yeah, like it's a sporting event. Like you guys gave us a great you know entertainment, um, but you know this is how far you're supposed to go. You know, well, mm-hmm. they went farther than they were supposed to be. He's like, this is it. Um, and I just, I just don't know where, you know, is, is that connection just implied? Like the 99 or the 1% will always turn towards this kind of sadistic relationship with the 99% because I don't fully agree with that. And I, I'm more, in, I'd be more interested in a subtler approach or yeah. to explain even in a throwaway line, like, Maybe they're all just starved for entertainment and it's Roman gladiatorial times mm. and it's just they just want to see people killed and bloodshed because they're so insane from being on this train for so long. Yeah. And that just wasn't really addressed. So I guess for me, my my reaction was, well, why don't you even try to explain why the 1% treats the 99% so bad? Yeah. There are other ways that you can you know, kind of rule a population. I think even, you know, control a population without being so overtly horrible, mm-hmm. you know, feeding them cockroaches, you know, mm-hmm. like when you find out what their protein bars are made of, right. that's just a horrifying moment. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I don't know, I guess, I guess maybe that was, that's the author or the writer's views or Bong Joon-ho maybe does feel like money will corrupt and it will also lead to mm-hmm. horrible oppression. But um, I I would have liked to see that maybe explored a little further or even see some people in the 1% not be such, take such pleasure in the destruction or the control of the 99%. Yeah. I, I, the, I think the class warfare stuff is there. It's there. Obviously I think the comparison to the occupy movement and the 99% is a little off because 
I mean, just on a, like a logistic basis, like there are a ton of people at the front of the train. It's not yeah. like, like I, I would expect if it was like an analogy for, you know, the 1% of the population controlling all of the wealth, then by the time they got to the front of the car, there wouldn't be that many people there. That That's one thing I thought was going to happen, honestly. Right. Heard, but yeah. it's like packed. it's packed. There are a ton of people up there. Yes. Um, so it kind of, it doesn't really work like that. And, and, and so I guess to your point of the, the sadism point of it, like, like, you know, maybe the population con- control idea is probably a legitimate con- concern if right. you're taking, you know, the constraints of this environment realistically or seriously. Um, and maybe, you know, the, the fact that they, that people are then forced to enact that, you know, by killing hundreds of people on a regular basis right like that could probably turn your society to the worse pretty quickly yeah um but i think the i think the this the you know if he's trying to just you know paint these people as pure sadists the one percent and now the the not a lot of people at the front of the train will work better because then it just is kind of like and that raises the question more for me it's kind of like if, if you look at our economy now, you just have, you know, a handful of people who are just earning more and more and more and more right, and more right. with complete disregard for everyone else. Right. And, you know, we've created a system for them to do that. And I don't really feel like that's what is happening on the train. On the train, it's there for whatever reason, the people in the front of the train have been selected to be in the front of the train and the people in the back have been selected to be in the back and they're keeping it that way. Yeah, and well, and they tie it to this religious idea almost of mm-hmm. balance, mm-hmm. you know, and that's how, you know, Ed Harris kind of sells it to him that, you know, this is for the greater good, and this is how everything was designed, preordained comes into play. Mm-hmm. I think a few times from Tilda Swinton's character, at least, um, where everybody has their preordained position. She does that hand motion, and Ed Harris does that hand right. motion too. Mm-hmm. There's that idea of being a cog in a wheel or, or mechanics, you know, working. If he wanted to make that corollary, I think there's a lot more you could say about the Occupy Wall Street movement, what happened to them, how it happened to them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a big proponent of the 1%. I think we are out of whack. You mm-hmm. know, I don't think companies are people. Mm-hmm. I think that's ridiculous. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't see, I feel like you're stretching if you're trying to read this as a corollary to the 99%, yeah. more than just saying, look, the rich have more than the poor. There is a growing divide between them. And, you know, social unrest is something that's even happening now. Maybe not for solely economic reasons, but it could happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I-, I think that that's pretty obvious in the film, I don't think that's a stretch. I think that's in line with what Bong Joon-ho is interested in portraying in his films. Mm-hmm. Social inequality. Um, the train does make it very binary. It is very in your face. But I think he does, he is able to inject humor, um, action, mm-hmm. um, and uh, interesting characters, good actors, of course, mm-hmm. through it all to kind of spice it up so it doesn't, I guess maybe that's the other thing. It's it's him doing it's a sleight of hand to make it not feel like a direct yeah. kind of social commentary, even though it absolutely is. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, and the 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 last thing that I thought was really interesting, and that some people have have brought up in the reviews I've read and and the things I've listened to, is the um, and the movie brings this brings this up. It when Ed Harris is talking to Chris Evans at the end, he um, I maybe it's one of the first things he says, or at least starts talking about. He, you know, he says that um, Gilliam the leader of the revolution in the back was working with him the entire time. Um, And he says that it's, it's all part and and they've been working together for years and the revolutions themselves are planned forms of population control, right? right? Instead of people just going to the back and murdering, you know, however much of the population they need to, uh, Wilford and Gilliam will get these revolutions going. So, they just get weeded out that way. Right. And they have that's... percentages. I think Tilda right. Swinton says it's At like the very beginning, she says, yeah, she says, you know, only 74% of you will live. Or maybe that's in the train sequence, I think. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if you thought, like, do you think that's just another form of Ed Harris or of uh, Wilford trying to, you know, smooth talk Chris Evans? Like, do you think Gilliam really is in on it? I think, I think Gilliam started in on it. I think mm-hmm. Gilliam was changed over time. I think, again, that goes to maybe the social point that mm-hmm. Bong Joon-ho might be trying to make. Um, because it it checks, right? Mm-hmm. When you when you watch a second time, Tilda Swinton's recognition of Gilliam mm-hmm. when he stands up is, you know, like, first time you're watching, you're like, why is she... Mm-hmm. He must have had some relationship to those up front. Then you realize that Gilliam is that man who cut off his arm to feed the people Mm -hmm. in the back, right? That Mm -hmm. helped turn Chris Evans. So then you think, wow, this is a guy who is really committed to this religious idea of balance and control that Wilfred is the, you know, head and he is the essence of the tale. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense that only somebody who's driven by that religious ideology or or, ideology would offer an arm that no rational person would do that. I don't care how empathetic you are. I don't know of anybody who in their right mind would, and for no, you know, kind of other purpose say eat of my body, Right. you know? So I think that checks. Now, why would Gilliam tell him to cut out, you know, Wilfred's tongue unless he did not want Chris Evans to perpetuate this system that they had in place. Right. I think it it speaks to the breakdown of ideology in an interesting way where, you know, underneath all these currents, you see um, Gilliam kind of confronting the limits of his own ideology mm-hmm. and then realizing that, you know, this balance that I thought would just perpetuate itself and I'd be a part of, and Wilfred would be a part of, has led to this great imbalance. And this is not the way that needs to be. And it goes back to, I guess, the sense that I was saying before, where you don't have to put down a population the way that Wilfred's doing it. Right. You know, you don't have to starve people. You don't, you know, you could just give them great birth control and be like, don't populate for reasons of the train, you know. But they big. need those kids to run the engine. But but yeah, well, populate within these parameters, right? Mm-hmm. But you, they could be buying into a system that they don't fully understand. Mm-hmm. I think in a way that wouldn't cause uprisings, 
you could be, I think, even taking their children, mm-hmm. telling them a, a story that they may want to believe of them going to a better place or even make the back of the train better. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. There are other ways that I think I think there is this idea of of ideology that runs through the film, too, that isn't in the text of it, mm-hmm. but in the subtext that I think is really interesting. So that's my take on Gilliam. Um I think he absolutely was a part of it at the beginning. I think he was playing his part. And I think after 17 years, right, that's how long they've been on the train, I believe. 18. 18 years. I think Gilliam has finally realized that his system of belief is whacked Mm -hmm. and it needs to end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think hmm, that's interesting. I I think I, I more or less believe what Wilford is saying, like, I feel like Gilliam's in on it. Sucker. Yeah. He fell for it. <laughs> right, yeah. You didn't cut his tongue I, I out. I think if anything, he probably wasn't on board at the beginning when he's cutting off his own arm. And then eventually he just starts, I don't know. But there are definitely, for me, there are moments throughout the, and I looked for it a little bit the second time I tried to watch it, but like he's very, when Chris Evans figures out that the guards don't have any bullets in their guns. That's a great scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, um, Gilliam is very reticent to like acknowledge it or to sort of like give the go ahead. And from my perspective, you know, from my perspective, he's you start trying, you to start to of... think that like maybe he's trying to just hold him back a little bit. And there's also a scene after that where uh, I think they get to the water cart and Gilliam is saying like, let's just stop here. We can stop here, right? And and he's trying to get him to stop more or less. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, eventually he then says, you know, go forward. Right. But there are those a uh, little moments of hesitation during the beginning that maybe don't seem like much the first time you watch it. Yeah. Yeah, I I I think that there's something to that. But I think whether or not he's turned before this final uprising or whether or not he's turned after he realizes you know, like you guys got through mm-hmm. this is, you know, I think he does at some point give up on his, on his ideology. Yeah. Do you have any other, I have one more question yeah, for sure. you. So the very ending of the film, do you think it's optimistic? Oh yeah. So yeah, I, I did want to talk about that. So the movie ends with them blowing up the, Thank the um, entire train blows up. Right. Right. And the only people who survive are the daughter and the five-year-old who was working in the engine. Who Chris Evans saved by who, sacrificing right, his who own Chris arm. Chris Evans saved. Um, and so they walk off the train into the snow and they don't freeze to death. And they see a polar bear. And they bear. see a polar bear walking up a mountain. Or, yeah, walking up a mountain. Um, and so I think it's supposed to be optimistic but at the same time like i'm thinking like do you know how hungry that polar bear probably is like yeah (laughs) you know what i mean like that thing is like they're not going to survive a polar bear (laughs) right so it's kind of like not only that like what are they going to do right like the entire world is covered in snow they now no longer have any food source because that was all on the train like I can't imagine this seventeen-year-old drug addict and a five-year-old are going to know how to forage for food, and I don't know how they can when everything's covered in, you know, ten feet of snow. Even if the snow is slowly melting, right? And they've never had to. They've never probably even lived in a house before. 
they don't even know what a structure right. that's, is. That's exactly right. Because they, they're train babies. They say that the daughter was born on the train as well. So the, the one thing that I love that I want to say is the fact that in a Bong Joon-ho film, you don't know whether an ending should be optimistic or pessimistic mm-hmm. because he plays with tone so much and he takes the death of characters so kind of, you know, I hate to use her the word realistically, but so kind of casually mm-hmm. in a way that it could happen that you do feel like there is a sense of reality that pervades this where in another film that's far more fanciful, you're going to feel like, Oh, of course it's up. Yeah. You know, of course they, they, they make it okay. Um, so I, I like to take this on the merits of what we know and what we know is they don't know how to survive what we know is there are predators. Not only is there life in the polar bear, but it is a pre- it will eat mm-hmm. people. So there are predators out there um, right now. Um, but they also have every single car that they can get to at least. Um, no, but the cars were knocked off the... Some were. Yeah. So, some were. And then some up at the front, like the engine, whoever made through that little tunnel, right? You know, they have those. If they want to go down the the, the, the valley, mm-hmm. uh, they could find some of those other cars. So they do have at least some cars that have supported life yeah. that do have food and things like that on them as well. So, you know, I think that, you know... It can be both. To me, it's... And I think, I guess it, it does come down to your interpretation. Is there enough to help them survive? Probably not to repopulate the Earth. Uh, yeah. But I like to imagine that they did, you know? So... Yeah, I, I think it's... There's op- a chance. I think it's optimistic in the sense that not everything on Earth is dead. <laughs> people are. People The people are, are done. But there is still, you know, life, life still will exists. find a way. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So so we'll, we'll finish by by we're going to try a recommendation system. Um, and so we're going. So the recommendation system is going to be more or less. Is this something you should see, listen to, read, you know, whatever as soon as you can? Is it something you need to something you should maybe like? schedule for you know what i mean like say like nothing else like this is something i need to see but at least before it's out of theaters you right. know or um can is this you something just, you like, should see in a frozen wasteland yeah. is this something that you should not see ever <laughs> um so so what what do you i you know what do you think yeah my my take especially in this summer of counter-programming where mm-hmm. you have Transformers 4 out there right yeah. now, whatever, I would go see this. And hey, if you want to go out to a theater, go see in a theater and have a good conversation about it. Like try and take its ideas somewhat seriously, which is, yeah. I think the other thing really quickly that, that we try and do here is have that further conversation because just saying like acknowledging, yeah, there's this structure, which I feel like some people do like this social commentary and then that's it. Yeah. You know, I like to, you know, try and go a little more in right. depth and, yeah. and tease out a little more. So, yeah, I think uh, mine is the highest recommendation that we can give right now, which is go see it now. Yeah, I, I, I would I would I agree if 
it's playing in a theater near you, I would say absolutely see it in the theater before it leaves. Just to support, you know, this the filmmaker. The, the filmmaker uh, I, I would support it in the theater just to be like, this is what this is more of what we want to see out of the movie industry. Yep. Rather than you know hundreds of millions of dollars being poured into write your congressman a fourth transformer movie. Right? Yes. Watch the movie, then write a letter to your congressman. I want to see Snowpiercer in theaters. <laughs> yeah. But outside of that, I, I you know like I said, I I liked it. I thought it was I. You know what? I, I would I would say if it's on video and demand, if you have some way to, to see it, I would recommend watching it. You know, you know, as soon, probably as soon as you could, just because the discussion you could have and, and the themes that I think it explores are worth are worth it. Even if I don't feel like the filmmaking, or if it didn't like totally deliver on the film itself. And if a film club is ever listening to this, or a guy who's thinking of starting a film club perfect film club movie yeah this is perfect yeah this is like it's not uh it's more about the ideas right exactly i think you'd have fun watching in a group yeah check it out yeah so that was a snow piercer we're gonna take a break and we will come back with the fermi paradox Okay, so we're not actually going to talk about the Fermi Paradox. <laughs> it's too much. It's too, too much, much to talk. Um, but what I will say is um, do a Google search for Fermi Paradox. A website called Wait But Why posted uh, their summarization, basically, of the Fermi Paradox. And we will probably talk about it at a later date. But, we, uh, you know, I would recommend just, just go and... and Read it. Dip your toes into it a little bit and see if it catches your interest. But it just is, it's a little bit too much to try and cram into the end of an episode. So what we'll do instead is um, we're just going to move straight into recommendations. Keith recommended the Spoon River Anthology, right? Yeah, by Edgar Lee Masters. And you specifically recommended what? the Just the dog-eared, at least the dog, the dog-eared pages and like at least... Both both sides of the dog eared, right? And then at least fifteen. Okay. Like to- counting counting the dog eared. <laughs> oh, okay. Counting the dog eared. Yeah. All right. Why well, did that then? Ca- counting the dog eared at least fifteen, and one of the reasons why I recommended this to you is because of the way it was recommended to me. Right. Which is literally by a stranger. Yeah. Who ran to his car and gave me this book, told me to read it, and I was like, "What better thing do I have to recommend to somebody than something that somebody else recommended to me?" Right. In the most aggressive way and possible. It's definitely a strange it is, book it? to like be that yes passionate about. Exactly. Uh, but it's a it's an anthology, as the name implies, um, and it's an anthology of dead people <laughs> from s- the Spoon River area, right? It's fictional, of course. Yeah, and and some of them are still alive when they're writing their little. Piece. Are they? Mm-hmm. Well, so I read the dog-eared ones, and then I just sort of flipped through, and I read through a bunch of other of the other ones, and I and then I started to think like, are all of these people dead? 
Um, and then I read the either the back of the book or like the Wikipedia, and they were like, and it just said, you know, it's a bunch of posthumous, you know, like recollections. Eulogies. Yeah, eulogies basically, like self eulogies almost. Yeah, maybe they're not. Maybe they are. That yeah. Um, go on. And so it's kind of like, and and I know the book came out what like over a hundred years ago. <laughs> But it's kind of like what Welcome to Night Vale is trying to do. Exactly. The podcast. With that being said, I don't particularly care for Welcome to Night Vale. Oh. I didn't really like the the first of all the the problem with the two the two strikes that the book has against it. It's poetry, like it's not traditional poetry, yeah, but they are poems. And I just I don't know why I just struggle with poems. Like they just don't do anything for me. Um, and the second thing is that it is. It's it's an anthology of just like it's just an anthology of people. So you so you're not really getting there's no like through line to follow. There's no narrative, right? It just is like it's just is like recollections of people from the area. And that's kind of my issue with Welcome to Night Vale is there may be some through lines from episode to episode, but overall and especially with Welcome to Night Vale, it's just is kind of like just trying to be as weird as it possibly can. And, you know, I, I listened to 40 episodes of that maybe before I stopped. So it's definitely entertaining. Like, I don't begrudge anybody listening to it. But for me, it just is like at some point it just be, it just becomes too much. See, for, for me, what Spoon, the Spoon River Anthology really meant to me, especially like I, on the other hand, love Welcome to Night Vale. Like, right. I feel like on a recommendation segment, I could have just recommended Welcome to Night Vale, <laughs> you know? Right. But this I found far more interesting because of everything that you said. I imagine this man, like, I'm not as well-versed about literature at this time. I can't think of anybody else who's written like this before. Yeah. You know, he very yeah. well could be the, you know, forefather of all kind of anthology series like Welcome to Night Vale, where you're just looking at these disparate characters. The other thing that I like about it is that there is no through line, but then occurrences happen. All of a sudden you stumble upon some lady who you realize was actually mentioned previously. Yeah. And then connects with this person. Then you realize, oh, she was the wife of this person right. who did this because he found that out. And so those connections I found really interesting and exciting that pop up as you read through the anthology. They're things that aren't even, it's not like, you know, the chapter title is people's names. It's not like this person's name and then like parentheses, the wife of the baker, right. you know, like you don't know until you actually start reading unless you remember the name, who this person is. Um, and so... I find that those are kind of interesting and exciting as you read through and cause you to kind of go back and look over. Um, so it is a, a really interesting look at Night Vale, which is getting a lot of praise yeah. for its original kind of format and for what it's doing. And then to realize like, yeah, it was, you know, there's nothing new. <laughs> like it's been done before. Um, and so I found that interesting. The other thing that I found really interesting is thinking about uh, Edgar Lee Masters writing this. And it got me really interested in him because just reading these, I just imagine this shut-in, hermit, <laughs> crazy person 
yeah. who's just living a life in in this fictional world. You know, yeah. way before we had ability, like to me, this guy could have invented if he was born a hundred years later, the second life or something. You know what I mean? Like yeah. this is a guy who would love living in today because he lived and this book is not short, which is the other right. thing. Like that's why I had to recommend only 15 because it's hundreds of pages. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this guy, this is almost like all he did, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, that to me is fascinating when you can hold the work of like, how many hours did this guy put into this? How many connections did he have in his right. own mind going that are just going to fly by everybody else? So then when I think about how it's given to me, it's just such a bizarre thing to fall into my lap, you yeah. know? Yeah, I understand. Um, was there one that you did like? Did you just not connect with any of it? Was it one I, that you... And it's not that I didn't even like them. It just is like... I, there's no way I would ever be able to bring myself to read that entire book. I mean, unless maybe some strange guy ran to his car and gave it to me, maybe that would come. <laughs> but like, I it just, it's just not my thing. I'm going to hire a it, guy. It's almost like the you. same issue that I, that I ran into with the game of Thrones books where it just becomes like you, you're at, at, at some point you're remembering so many different things and you're like, you get to another chapter and you know you're on like book five of game of thrones and then it's like okay this is the guy who from book two did this thing to this person's family that is related to this kingdom or whatever it's just like at some point it just gets to be too much you know what i mean yep well i um i also think this has at least my copy of this that was given to me has one of the most terrifying covers like I remember when I was reading this when he first gave it to me, this guy, and it was like propped by my bed. And I remember when I woke <laughs> up, and it's like these like ghostly figures standing by like a flagpole, but there's yeah. no wind, so the flag is just loosely dangling, <laughs> like you know. And they're yeah. all just like staring out from the book. Yeah, uh, you know, I I think that this is just an oddity that I love to think will always exist in the world. Mm -hmm. I hope that this gets reprints and reprints, mm -hmm. not so that people can read it, but just so that it can be there in existence and somebody can walk by and be like, what is the Spoon River Anthology? Yeah. And read just one of the crazy little poems mm -hmm. from it. Yeah. So have you, have you heard of a group called Moon Hooch? Have I? <laughs> How would I ever hear of a group called Moon Hooch? So my recommendation for you comes with no qualifiers just outside of the one saying that there's no qualifiers. But I'm recommending YouTube video <laughs> of a group called Moon Hooch performing um, a NPR Tiny Desk concert. All right. You got it. So that's it. Like I said a little bit earlier, we've been doing the Leftovers podcast. So if you're listening to this and you haven't uh, check that out yet check it out unless you're not watching the leftovers yeah. in which case it'd be kind of pointless <laughs> um and at this point i'm not comfortable recommending the leftovers to anybody so yeah we'll be back in another two to three weeks potentially um it, i could think it's going to be a little touch and go while we're doing the leftovers thing because we're trying to get that out every monday, monday. i am at blizzard 
with oh nine with Z's. nine Z's. Oh boy, how did I forget that part? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm at Things Come Right. Yeah. So uh, until next time, we'll see ya. Yep. <laughs> we'll see you next time.